Hello and welcome to this next episode of the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk all things transportation, anything that gets you from here to there. I'm the transportation reporter and the traffic anchor for Denver 7 News, Jason Luber. I'm your very own pedestrian advocate and executive producer, Joseph Peters. Jason, episode 183, it's good to be here. Almost. We're at uh, 159, I think. No, is that right? I, I can't, I've lost track. I think it's 159. Beautiful. I think that's where we are. Or 160. Somewhere. We're up in the, we're in the, we're past 150. I know that. Cruising uh, yeah, towards are, 200. <laughs> we have an interesting interview for you later today. Coming up, we'll talk with uh, Dr. Celine Vetter, and she is the senior author of a new study out of the University of Colorado that shows there is an increased risk in fatal car wrecks when we switch in the spring to daylight saving time. I've known for a long time, I've talked about it for a long time, that there are more crashes in the week, and I say weeks, at least a couple of weeks, after the time change. I think it messes with people's sleep, and it messes with the daylight, and it is a major factor in the way we drive, and the, and the change in the way we drive every spring especially. It also obviously happens in the fall, but I think it's worse in the spring. Uh, I think this is an interesting topic. And we'll get to all the details from Dr. Vetter coming up in just a little bit. She She's a super sleep expert. She has all kinds of research in sleep. God bless her. I can't wait to pick her brain about all things sleep, waking up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. She is a very smart cookie. Now, last week we interviewed Tucson traffic anchor Big Al as part of our talking Traffic series. Uh, Big Al Alan Kaith, he left us a voicemail message. He called us. And wanted to leave a message about his appearance from last week. So here it is. Jason, Big Al, KGUN 9 Television, Tucson, Arizona. Great interview last week. I wanted to call and leave a message so that we don't say the word bupkis anymore. Love your show. Thank you for the nice time last week. Take care. <laughs> I don't recall ever saying the word bupkis. Well, after today, you'll never say the word bupkis again. I don't ever recall ever saying bupkis. Uh, Why do you continue saying the word bupkis? I I would vow to quit saying the word bupkis, but we are drawn into a bupkis cyclone. It certainly seems as though we are in the midst of a bupkis cyclone, Jason. However, will we pull ourselves out? I mean, if a bupkis slips out. I don't think I should be held responsible for my actions because we are in this bupkis cyclone. Thanks again to Big Al, though, for his time, and uh, I'll search for another traffic anchor we can interview for maybe next week yes. in Talking Traffic. In the meantime, Al, that check is in the mail, and you know what it's worth. <laughs> bupkis. Bupkis. We also uh, received another voicemail this week, and I'm always putting out our phone number, 303-832-0217, asking people to leave us a message and so here is voicemail number one from Greg. Well, I love the show. It's great to listen to, especially while driving. Here's your requested voicemail of some heavy breathing. <laughs> and the live report from I-70. Eastbound at the Eisenhower Tunnel is wide open at 10.58 p.m. on a beautiful Tuesday afternoon. Why can we not get people out of the left lane 
while driving at a slower rate of speed in the state of Colorado. That's my pet peeve. Have an awesome day, guys. My name's Greg Heidel, and enjoy the show. Rockin'. That's it from the tunnel. I'm holding my breath. One full mile. But still breathing hard for you guys. Rock on. There you go. Holding his breath in the tunnel. You ever do that? I always just honk the horn. I try to I try to hold my breath every time I'm in a tunnel, actually. Sometimes it doesn't work out so well. Sometimes it works out great. I'm also a big fan of heavy breathing. Thank you for the heavy breathing. It was satisfyingly creepy, just as I thought it would be. <laughs> yes, I think I think we're about to go viral with that uh, ASMR community. It uh, It's easy, though. If you want to do, also do either heavy breathing or give us a... A message of substance. See, Greg did good. He did both. He yeah. gave us a, a traffic report. He did the heavy breathing. And he also uh, gave us what his pet peeve was driving, as I've been asking the other traffic anchors from around the country what their pet peeve is. And his is uh, people camping out in the left lane. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's not just a problem here. It's a problem everywhere. Yes, it is. So anyway, that number, 303-832-0217. Leave your message for us, just like Greg did. And we can uh, play it here on the show. So, Greg, thanks for listening. We appreciate you as well as all the other listeners. 303-832-0217 is the phone number. Joseph, let me take you to Mount Clemens, Michigan. Okay. Where a Harrison Township man has been charged for allegedly driving drunk to his court hearing with a blood alcohol level nearly four times the legal limit. (laughs) If you're going to drive drunk, make sure you do it to your court date where you're up for DUI. Oh, buddy. So it was 57-year-old James Gerd who was already in court for a hearing about driving while intoxicated, a charge he received December 30th, so he was already partying early for the new year. James had uh, some difficulty speaking in court, slurring his words. The judge said he noticed some concerning behavior by Mr. Gerd and Requested that he be tested for alcohol. I'm sorry. I'm concerned that we even made it that far. How did the drunk guy make it past the metal detector at the courthouse (laughs) and in to talk to a judge to try to plead his case with his slurred speech and his wavering stance? I don't don't don't, get it. They don't check your drinks on the way in. Actually, They can't smell you when you're at a point three two. Well, I don't think there's any law about being drunk in in the courtroom or in the uh, courthouse or in court. Is there? You know what? If there's not... I'm shocked. I would think, I mean, isn't that like where an officer uses discretion? Like, sir, you're hammered. Why are you here? Like, you should not be here if you're hammered. Go home. Skip the court hearing. It can't possibly be as bad as what's about to happen to you if you walk into that courtroom drunk. That last time I was at the Douglas County Court for a jury summons, I had a cup of coffee with me, and they let me come through. They actually took the cup of coffee. They didn't put it through the x-ray scanner because that would have been dumb. But they just looked at it because apparently people put knives and other weapons in the bottom of their coffee cups. <laughs> okay. Understood. Had you had a half gallon of vodka in the coffee cup, right. I think they would have stopped. They, they probably would. Uh, Mr. Gerd allegedly told officers he had just a couple of shots. This guy. Now we're talking about this is before going to court. They also found a partly emptied bottle of vodka in his vehicle. He was arraigned on another charge of operating a vehicle while intoxicated with a high blood alcohol content since his BAC was over 
3-0. This is Bartender Wisdom right here, folks. The vodka drunks are the worst because they think they're concealing it because they're, sh- they're t- just taking vodka shots. And right. you're not concealing anything, man. You're hammered. Because they think you can't smell it. Right. And we all can smell it. You smell like rubbing alcohol. You smell like the acne pads I used to put on my face when I was 14. <laughs> did you have a problem with acne, did you? I have a problem with vodka. I want to get your take off the- <laughs> On this. So there was a driver in Brooklyn with eight violations for speeding or running a red light. And that person killed a five-year-old girl and a one-year-old boy. An 85-year-old woman was killed by another Brooklyn driver with 10 speeding violations and two red light violations. In Manhattan, a driver with two speeding tickets crushed a bicycle courier. So after years of seeing lower numbers, traffic deaths have been increasing in New York City. Now, they've announced an aggressive step aimed at thousands of these aggressive, most dangerous drivers in New York City. And what they want to do is require people who rack up multiple speeding or red light camera violations to take a driving safety course or risk losing your car. The city would take your car. Just straight up take it? Straight up seize your car. Good. The program would make New York City the first in the country to use traffic camera violations and try to change the behavior of reckless drivers through this education and also with the threat of impoundment instead of just relying on fines. So instead of getting repeated fines, maybe jail term, but that usually never happens, you're going to have to go through driving class and... You're going to have the risk of having your car taken away. Well, because that's going to be a passive thing, right? It's like you, they'll put it on the books to take your car the next time they pop you for not paying a parking meter or right, something, Right, something like that. Yeah. Now, the Reckless Driving Initiative, which will be a three-year pilot program at first, is going to require the vehicle who gets five red light camera tickets or 15 speed camera violations in a year to complete a safety course to be do, uh, developed at a later date by the city's Department of Transportation, drivers who fail to complete that course could then lose their vehicles. It's interesting that they say it's the vehicle that that gets the ticket, not the driver. And in New York City, they actually levy the, uh, the ticket to the vehicle and not to the individual driver, which I thought was an interesting take because if, if let's say, I'm driving a a shared cab or a shared whatever vehicle uh, and I run the red light, you run the red light, the next guy, Ted, runs a red light, uh, so you have multiple people doing it, it's still in the same vehicle and then the vehicle is flagged. Oh, I see. So if I'm so if we are a family of reckless drivers, you, me, and Gina, and we all jump in the car and right. run red lights all the time, they're eventually just going to take the car away. Exactly. Got it. So about 5,000 vehicles, less than 1% of the nearly 2 million vehicles registered in New York City, are expected to accumulate the number of tickets that would trigger this safety course based on violation patterns in the past years and future predictions as more speed cameras are added through New York City. Now... I, I don't know how they can make you go to traffic uh, school if they don't know who is to blame. If they are levying these tickets since they're tied to the vehicle, not the driver. So how does that work? Because the, it doesn't apparently go onto your record. 
it goes on to the vehicle. So does a vehicle go to traffic court or and go to traffic school? Yes. And it it has to be a person. It needs to sit very still and not make any sound while the teacher's explaining what's going on and why you shouldn't run red lights. And then afterwards, the vehicle can go out and drive itself for ice cream. <laughs> It'd be fine if it was a Tesla. Yeah. Something like that. Uh, this legislation was spurred by a particularly horrible crash. A couple years ago, there was a driver who plowed through a red light in the Park Slope neighborhood of Brooklyn, and that driver killed a five-year-old girl and a one-year-old boy. Um, the Broadway actress uh, Ruthie Ann Miles um, was the mother of the five-year-old. She was hit. She was pregnant and lost the baby that she was carrying two months later. So it's a, it's a horrible a horrible crash. And the vehicle was driven by a woman. Her name is Dorothy Burns. And she had accumulated four speeding violations and four tickets for running red lights before this horrific crash. And Miss Burns was charged with manslaughter. And later she was found dead in her home, believed to have killed herself. Now, I could understand that she felt horrible in what she did. It wasn't changing her behavior, getting all these tickets, because she probably was just not even paying them, didn't even care. Would have made a difference if she was ordered to go to traffic school, because then you're going to have to find her, find her, and then get her to go to traffic school. And what if she doesn't go? You, then you take her car, I guess. That I, I, I would really like to see the city take somebody's car, and somebody's going to fight that in court. Oh, absolutely. And they should, but the thing, I mean, if the law is passed, you're challenging to have the entire law taken down at that point, Of course. Right? It's not just about getting your car anymore. That's going to be something for some enterprising lawyer who's ready for like a seven-year battle over a stupid car. Could you imagine that? I, I Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's where somebody's we're headed, gonna right? Yes, of course. Somebody's going to challenge the law mm-hmm. once they try to take your car, and they're going to say, you can't take my personal property in that way. Well, it's not going to be a try to take your car. They're going to challenge the law after the car is took. And it is on an impound lot, and I don't have the money to get it back after interest and fees and other bull, and I can't get to work anymore, and it ruined my life that you impounded my car because I ran a red light. Our favorite mayor, Bill de Blasio. Second favorite. Said, <laughs> I met our first favorite today. <laughs> uh, no, I saw uh, – actually, the mayor uh, – he, um, uh, Mayor Hancock came into the studio this morning mm-hmm. uh, for something, for a little interview. He said he liked my tie. And I said, uh, it's a rental. <laughs> Got a chuckle out of that. <laughs> well, look, all the women, they actually have these rental clothes. I, I did not know that. I oh, yeah, no, they have, it's, it's called Rent the Runway, and they have rental clothes, and every month they're sent clothes, and then they send them back. And they have the option to buy the clothes yeah, or not. I'll tell you what, that's a good joke, man. Hang on to that one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Besides speed cameras, New York City has reduced the speed limit of much of the city. Down to 25 miles an hour. That's not helping. People, as we've talked about, they don't really monitor what the speed limit is. They just feel what's com- They just drive what feels comfortable to them. Yep. Um, the city, New York City, also announced the formulation of a special force of 100 police officers charged with enforcing traffic rules because their evidence suggests that the drivers who tr- routinely tout or uh, uh, flaunt the traffic laws of course are more dangerous. Yep. Of course they are. Um, but that's what it comes down to, more enforcement. We always talk about enforcement. Don't just lower the speed or whatever. You have to have people out there having, uh, keeping you accountable for what your actions are. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's and what the that's, cameras are for, too, right? Yes. Yeah. But we're getting rid of cameras around here. A lot of 
places don't want cameras. Well, that's just the revolt of the people who say, please don't film us while we're breaking the law. Right? Well, yeah. We've talk- we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Yeah, of course 90% of people think red light cameras are terrible. They're the 90% of people who are getting caught by red light cameras. That doesn't make- change the fact that they're catching people doing things that are bad. I still want a person to catch me and not a camera. Does it does it not count if it's a camera and not a person? It's were, just, were you any less running the red light if it's a person that pulls you over as opposed to a camera? No, that I, yeah, you? no, I obviously you do it, but I'd, I'd rather it because I, I is it more I satisfying least, for you if somebody pulls you over and says, "Sir, why were you doing that?" Well, I still think in the United States I have the right to face my accuser. <laughs> Don't I? You were looking at the camera. They probably got your face at ten and two behind the wheel. It's not my accuser. Well, I guess kind of it is, but I know I, I just I want to see a person. I want to see a person. I vote we raise taxes so we can hire people to sit at red lights and pull over people like Jason. In Europe and Australia, where red light and speed cameras are widely used, many transportation experts there, uh, they say that the camera systems have improved safety greatly. And it depends on if they're on uh, rural highways or on uh, city highways, apparently. And um, if the drivers see him or not. <laughs> of course it does. If you know that the camera's there, you're going to slow down or you're not going to run the red light. Oh, it's all common sense, man. In New York City, the cameras, when they issue a ticket to a vehicle going more than 10 miles an hour over the speed limit, the fine is $50. That's it, $50. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's say I, I blew through... Five of them, two hundred fifty bucks. That's what. That's why these people are not paying the fines because it's fifty bucks. They see it and they go, "What are you going to do about it, Mayor?" They're gonna they're gonna take your car, Jason. That's and then that's then what, that's what it. we're gonna do. They saw this problem. They said, "Well, people don't like this enforcement. What if we try taking all of their vehicles?" I don't know. I don't. I just I just see this issue as a you you know you can't take my car. I I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. Like, please just don't take my car. Why are you doing that? Can't you just continue fining me $50 at a time? And I don't get why they don't tie the ticket to the person. They probably, like like here in Colorado, you, they have to, you, you, they'll send you a ticket and it's not quite the it's not the same as if a officer pulls you over and gives you a citation because really that's a an appearance to go to court and when you pay early you're actually doing a plea bargain you're pleading guilty for a lower sentence and paying a fine right that's what you're doing right. so you have the option to go to court now when you get a speeding ticket from the cameras from the radar thing or one of the red light things they will send you that violation in the mail and then you can say, well, it wasn't me. Prove it. Prove it wasn't me. And then they'll say, well, who was it? I don't know. It wasn't me. Prove that it was me. You have to prove, you as the accuser have to prove that it was me. When's the last time you got one of those in the mail? A couple of years ago, three years ago, did, a speeding one? Did, did they have you just straight up behind the wheel in an indefensible position? Like, oh, yeah, that is definitely me. If I showed up yeah, to court, probably. I could not alter my appearance enough to not make it look like me behind the wheel. Probably. Probably, yes. However, there wasn't somebody that was there saying, you just did this right now, right here, 
and I see you doing this, and I saw you do this, and now I'm giving you a, a deal to come to court, and then you can defend yourself. That never happened. And I, I, and I don't know why they, they, they tie everything to, their, to the cars. That's, that's stunning to me. So you are arguing, essentially, that we should trust the referee's judgment on the field instead of going to instant replay. Oh, I like the instant replay. Well, there you go. All right, for the longest time, I've been talking about the increased number of crashes that occur in the weeks. It's right after the time change, especially in the spring. It happens every single year. Now we have a study, I mean, from official smart people, that proves the time change is very bad on drivers. Some very smart researchers at the University of Colorado in Boulder looked into the springtime change and its effects on drivers and found a surge in fatal car crashes that happen right after the springtime change. The study is called a chronobiological evaluation of the acute effects of daylight saving time on traffic accident risk. And we are lucky enough to have one of the senior authors of this study, Dr. Celine Vetter, on the show today. Dr. Vetter, thank you for being here on the World Famous Driving You Crazy podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. So we will get to the meat of the study here in just a minute. But what made you and the other team of researchers interested in studying the relationship between crashes and the time change? There have been a lot of legislative um, initiatives lately surrounding daylight saving time and asking the question, you know, do should we get rid of the switch? What is the evidence behind perhaps getting rid of the switch and and which way should we go and so when we reviewed some of the evidence it stood out to us that actually many of the studies looking at the traffic accident rates related to DST have been quite outdated um, have have been very heterogeneous in findings have had different statistical approaches and so and so we thought okay let's see if there's a if you know there is an extensive data set we could use and ask that question again do we do we see that increase in risk that some studies have seen but others have not i should mention that just yesterday we had a bill in the colorado state legislature to make colorado always on daylight savings time daylight saving time i i always do that i do the daylight savings time it's daylight saving time anyway the, the state is, of, yeah. yeah and the day in the state of colorado just killed it in one of the committees so colorado is not going to be going all the time to daylight saving time now the lead sentence in your study it reads there is evidence that the spring daylight saving time transition acutely increases motor vehicle accident risk, which has been partly attributed to sleep deprivation and circadian misalignment. But right after that, there is much said about how the time change changes also about how we see daylight during the morning and evening commutes. So what do you yeah. think is more of a factor here in this crash risk, the disruption of the sleep or the change in the light. So I think it's it's both, and that's and that's one thing that our study tried to address more explicitly, and that hasn't been done before in in that explicit manner. Um, but what we do see is really that overall we see a change in in traffic accident risk that only happens in springtime. If it was only light. 
Um, we would actually expect things to to um, be visible in spring and fall because we basically change visibility during rush hours once in the morning and springtime, right? So you have more, um, you have less visibility in the morning, and then in springtime and fall, um, it goes the other way around. Um, and so what you would expect is that if it was only light that we that we need to worry about is that the entire increase associated with daylight saving time would be related to that morning increase in risk. But that's not what we see. We do see that this effect is actually observed throughout the day, and we see that it's more pronounced in the morning Again, suggesting that it's a combined effect of visibility and increase in sleep deprivation and misalignment. We're speaking with Dr. Celine Vetter, Assistant Professor of Physiology and Researcher in Circadian Rhythms, Sleep Disruption, Light Exposure, Shift Work, Work Hours, Occupational Health at the University of Colorado uh, in Boulder, and talking about how the time change affects how we drive and affects our crash risk. How did the research tie the number of fatal crashes, the increased number, into the time change? So what we basically did is to take 22 years of data. There is an amazing resource um, that actually collects data on every fatal car crash in the U.S. It's called the U.S. Fatality Analysis Reporting System. Um, And we we used this data set um, to basically ask, does DST in spring, increase your risk of fatal car crashes. And we did that because there is evidence that it's especially the springtime change that disrupts your sleep and your circadian rhythms, not so much the fall one. And so we took 10 years before the, um, in 2007, the Energy Policy Act was, um, was enabled and That meant that DST was extended. So instead of um, beginning the first Sunday in April, DST now starts the second Sunday in March, um, and it ends later. It ends in November instead of in October. And so we wanted to, to account for that, and so we took 10 years before the Energy Policy Act was um, enacted. We took the 10 years before that and the 10 years after that, um, and so one of the questions we had was, well, if it's really DST <clears throat> in springtime, that is, you know, the factor driving that spike in accident risk and not some some spurious association due to weather, due to some other types of influences, um, then we should see that the spike in accident risk follows the time change, right, from the first Sunday in April to um, mid-March. And so we we looked at the overall effect of DST and saw this modest association of 6% increase in risk of fatal accident risk overall. And then when we split it up into before 2007 and after 2007, we indeed saw that the, the spike in accident risk moved from April to March, exactly into that week after DST um, is observed. 
So that kind of gives us more confidence that it's really about DST and it's not about something else that happens at the same time. So it really, as you said, doesn't really matter when we do the shift. It is the shift that is the actual problem. It does actually, well, so you're right. It's the switch that is the problem. We do see a little bit of a higher risk in March. Um, and we think this is related again to the to the environmental light levels, and the weather could play into that as well. But overall, yes, we see that spike no matter what in April and in March. This is something that we can get rid of, right? Right, and and, and but as you know, the day if we never changed our our clocks, the way we measure time. We are going to see more daylight the closer we get to June 1st than we will closer to December 21st. So do you think changing it uh, so early has really thrown people off because we're still not ready to have that much light? I mean, when when we get into the spring, we're, we're we're ready for that light. The plants are ready for it. That's what makes the plants start to bud out and, and, to, and to change. Maybe if we pushed it back, maybe it would help us out a little bit. Um, so, so we still see that spike even before 2007. So I would think um, that there is still concern even if it's happening later. Um, the issue about DST as a whole um, is that it increases evening light exposure levels and it decreases morning light exposure levels. And we know from our circadian studies that morning light is really important to anchor us to the 24-hour day and regulate our physiology accordingly. And the more darkness we we experience in the morning, the more it can throw us off and the more we clash with our work hours, the harder it is to get up in the morning um, and the more sleep deprivation we see. So from that perspective, um, as chronobiologists, many of us actually favor um, standard time because it, it keeps us brighter light in the morning um, and minimizes light at night and light in the evening, which actually pushes us later. And so again, this this makes it harder for us to get up in the morning, to go on with our lives, and to get enough sleep, which are all really important predictors for health and well-being. Yeah, we'll talk more about that coming up in just a little bit. We're speaking with Dr. Vetter, the senior author for a uh, study that came out called the Chronobiological Evaluation of the Acute Effects of Daylight Saving Time on Traffic Accident Risk. My guess doctor, is that there is a greater risk in crashes, as you were just talking about with with how the daylight really centers us, that there would be a greater risk then in crashes for the morning drivers after the time change rather than the drivers in the evening. Yeah, so we see that it's more pronounced in the morning. That's true. And so this is exactly that interaction I'm talking about, about the environmental light levels and the visibility that comes with it. Um, but we also think that the sleep and circadian deprivation and misalignment part plays into that because the the increase in accident risk is actually visible throughout the day. So it's not driven entirely by light levels. How much lower is the risk, if, if you studied it, in the week 
two and week three and week four after the time change? So we didn't we didn't look in the in the weeks three and four. We looked in the week before and the week after. And all our analysis that we did was basically comparing the week after DST to all other weeks in the year. Um, but things don't really change if you if you change that reference, right? So if we look at the week before DST, we don't see a significant increase in traffic accident risk, as you would expect. Um, and that's kind of a control condition, if you want. Um, and and then we look in the week afterwards, and again, there is no increase in risk. But there is a consistent increase in risk in the week after DST. So it does it does stand out compared to the week before and two weeks after, um, which again gives us confidence that this is a real effect and not driven by weather or light alone. Do you see a difference in the risk between time zones? So is it the same for drivers on the East Coast as it is for us in the mountain time zone, as it is for the folks on the Western uh, time zones? So what we do see is that um, the further west you go into your time zone, so whether you're in mountain time, Pacific time, Eastern time, the further west you go, um, the higher the risk increase. And what we think is going on is that the further west you live, the further, the longer it takes for the sun time to match the time on your clock, right? Because sun is moving from east to west. And so there is some data suggesting on a population level that people living further west in the time zone are more likely to be sleep-deprived and misaligned um, than people living at the, at the outer edge of their time zone in the very east. And so when we look in five-degree kind of steps, we see that there is a, a continuous increase in traffic accident risk across the time zone um, related to DST. So living further west further accentuates that risk that's associated with DST. That's interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting because I would have thought it would be different within, not just within each individual time zones. I, I was just wondering if it was also the same for the entire eastern time zone compared to the entire western time zone, but it doesn't seem like that's the case. We didn't look at that. I can't. I can't speak towards that. Um, um, yeah, I don't have the data to answer okay. that question. You we look, could, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm giving you some <laughs> yeah. ideas here, Doc. I'm. You yeah. know, I'm just. Uh, I'm an idea guy. Yeah. So. <laughs> so. I love that. There, there's some more yeah. research no, for you that'll great. keep you busy for the next couple of years. And, and you know, there are definitely there are definitely differences by state and where you are in the country in terms of how many people live there, you know, and, and how much traffic there is. So, so those are all factors that contribute to variability in the signal. Well, and what about a state like Arizona uh, or even Idaho? Arizona, not all, all, not all the uh, entire state of Arizona changes with the time change. And, and in uh, Idaho, I think the time zone in northern Idaho actually goes east-west instead of north-south. So you drive north to northern Idaho, 
and you're in a whole day, and you're in the Pacific time zone. You drive south, and you're in the mountain time zone. So I'm sure that messes with those people. <laughs> Something crazy. Yeah, and so what we did was to really like geotag each specific accident um, and where it occurred by latitude and longitude, and basically mapped it into each of the specific time zones. What we also did, there are states that do not observe DST, right? And so those were excluded from all our analysis, of course. They were not enough accidents for us to use this as a reference, in case that was your next question. But um, so those states were taken out. But yeah, so we had a really high spatial resolution for kind of saying where the accidents took place. Well, what about other countries? Other nations do have similar time change as we do. Uh, do they have a similar increased risk in crashes and fatal crashes? Um, so I, you know, I, I'm from Europe originally, and and I I I'm not aware of like such a big database that would give you the power to look at that with. With so many accidents, we had about 730,000 accidents that were recorded over those 22 years. Um, so that really gives you a lot of power to actually look at, you know, time of day effects, week effects, um, questions like how does this change within a time zone. Um, I'm not I'm not aware of similarly powerful databases in in for example Europe um but you're right like there's a there's a huge variability I think it's kind of it's kind of helpful to do this kind of study in the US because we have you know similar levels of where our cars are in terms of technology, how the regulations work, things like that. So it's kind of an advantage from an experimental point of view. Um, I'm, I'm, most of the studies have been done in the U.S. indeed. Hey, there's more work for you right there. Boom. Yeah. Okay, just... <laughs> yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I wouldn't have known what to do with all my time. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, man. All right. We're speaking with Dr. Celine Better, assistant professor uh, of uh, physiology and researcher in circadian rhythm, sleep disruption at the University of Colorado in Boulder. You can follow her on Twitter at Dr. Celine Vetter. So let's look at some of the sleep issues. You've done extensive research on night shift workers looking for a correlation to heart disease and into sleep and that if you sleep too much or too little it can actually affect your heart if you work shift work it can affect your heart it, it, it I, I could tell you anecdotally that that I'm in much worse physical shape uh, physically and emotionally working the early morning hours that I do than if I wasn't so I'm sure that affects the way I drive uh, both in the morning and in the evening yeah no, you're right. And so, and I think, you know, what is, what is, um, really great to see is that increasing awareness for the importance of sleep and the body clock, um, and how it plays into, into our health and our well-being. And everybody knows that they get grumpy when they don't sleep enough, but we now actually have data showing what the underlying physiology is for these types of things. And we know that if you if you sleep too little, um, that's typically bad for many physiological outcomes, such as heart disease, such as your risk of type 2 diabetes. 
um, we know that your food choices are affected and that this in the long run can increase your risk of obesity and things like that. So it's it's becoming more and more obvious how important sleep and and circadian rhythms, which really go hand in hand um, in the real world, how important they are. And, and for the early types, it's much harder to work during the night than the early morning shift. Well, I, I wake up usually around 2.15 in the morning. Uh, then, oh, wow. Yeah, then hit the road and come in. I leave my house at, uh, just before 3. We actually have a morning show meeting at 3.30 uh, here in the newsroom with everybody involved, and then we start our broadcast at 4.30. And I, I can tell you anecdotally that the the shift that I'm on, it makes me more hungry. It makes me grumpy. Um, I have to really fight that, especially in the evening when I'm with my kids and with my wife. Uh, I'm tired all the time. I, I, can, I know that I lose concentration, and it's harder for me to concentrate, especially oh. when I'm trying to read uh, anything – uh, like your study, I was trying to read through that, and then I have to just step back for a minute, and then regroup, and then get back at it. Yeah, no, this is this is extremely early. And how much sleep do you get when you have to get up at two fifteen? I usually go to bed by seven thirty or so, eight o'clock maybe at the latest. So we're looking at okay. six, six and a half maybe. Yeah, so that's actually that, that's too little. The American Academy of Sleep Medicine recommends seven to nine hours for adults. Um, if you can, but we know that there is a huge variability in in sleep needs in individuals. Um, and most of our big data studies don't really reflect that sleep need very well currently. Um, other factors play a huge role too, right? How well do you sleep during those six hours? Sleep quality is is a huge independent predictor of of health and well-being. If you sleep well, um, it, it can it can help you to bring down the risk of many of these adverse outcomes. Um, and then, you know, how how regular do you sleep like that? Like, do you sleep the same schedule every night, or do you bounce around? Do you have to bounce around? Yeah, unfortunately, it I have to bounce to around be. in the weekends because then uh, I, I, yeah. I, you know, I just want to stay up with my family and watch a movie, and then by eight o'clock, I'm, yeah. I'm dead tired and falling asleep while everybody else is watching the movie. Yeah, and and you don't want to be the boring guy who goes to sleep <laughs> early, right? So that's the issue when you when you have to wake up very early during the week. Um, also, when you're just naturally an early type often your social jet lag, your so-called social jet lag, which is this misalignment um, between your sleep timing on work days and free days, um, becomes greater on weekends because you want to be part of the social events that take place. You want to you wanna be involved. Um, so there are different reasons underlying why you are bouncing around. Um, but the issue oftentimes is related to work, right? And when, when do you have to be at work? Um, it's not you and your body who decide when you can wake up and should wake up. Nobody would, would just stop a washing machine in the middle of its program. Um, but we do that with alarm clocks all the time. We stop the sleep process, even though we know that it's so important to, to sleep and, and finish your sleep phases throughout the night. Would you be in favor of doing away with a time change or just leaving it all the time on standard time or 
leave it all the time on spring forward all year long? So I, um, I very much endorse standard time year-round. Um, we, we know that the switch by itself doesn't really help anything. It was introduced due to energy considerations. Um, actually, it had been intro- like we have had permanent daylight saving time in the U.S. and in Russia, and it's always been abolished because a lot of people have been complaining. And there, there is anecdotal evidence of increases in traffic accident risks than in the winter and pedestrian a- accidents. So I think, you know, we, we know our, our study and with the whole body of literature that's out there, overall, I think it's very clear that we don't need to switch. It's, it's increasing the risk of workplace injury. It's increasing the risk of fatal traffic accidents. Um, there's one study from last year, I think, that even showed that your, um, your sentence in court tends to be higher for the same type of, um, um, how do you say, the same type of, um, of crime, right? Of crime. Of yeah. crime. Uh, you get you get a longer sentence, and this off and the authors of this study, um, on the first Monday after DST compared to every other Monday in the year, and the authors of the study suggest that this is due to, you know, you process information differently when you're more sleep deprived and misaligned, and you might actually process things also emotionally differently, and they they think this is how this increase in in <laughs> in the severity of sentences um is happening and so we 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 see this whole body of literature really pointing towards that we should get rid of of this switch and now the big question is do we want permanent dst or permanent standard time and as a chronobiologist um i'm really worried about permanent daylight saving time especially in western part of the time zones where it's already much later daytime, if you look at your clock, right, at 8 a.m. at at the eastern part of the time zone, you will always have daylight. In the west, not, and this is especially hard in winter, right? If we were staying on daylight saving time in winter, you would have really dark mornings, sometimes until 8, 9 a.m. in the morning. So school kids would go to school in the dark every morning and stay in the dark for several hours. Um, and so, again, from a chronobiological perspective, this this actually contributes to sleep deprivation and circadian misalignment, which are predictors of obesity, heart disease, type 2 diabetes, and emotional regulation issues, and, and many other things we know about seasonal affective disorder, which you know, can be really helped with morning light. So we would make these things worse. So from that perspective, I very much endorse permanent standard time. I've always thought it would be a great idea, instead of just going forward for the one hour or backward for the one hour, let's cut it in half. Let's make it a half hour for the entire country and then be good with that. Either that idea or, Dr. Vetter, how about this? We we have a, a worldwide conference and everybody picks what we should be, and then redo the time zone so and redo the time thing so we're all on a perfect sleep time zone. 
How about that? That I I, I love that idea, <laughs> and there are actually people out there who have proposed optimized maps for sleep and circadian alignment because you're right, in some time zones, people are very far away from some time just because their country is in a position in their time zone that's so far removed. Think about Spain, right? So the Spaniards are very far away from... Um, from some time in their time zone. And so, so yeah, there are definitely people out there who are putting this forward. Um, I think why, why have a switch if, if there is no real benefit to it? You know, we yeah. don't have an economical benefit. There is no energy-related benefit. I wouldn't bother with it, to be honest. Like, so- no half-hour time switch there. So basically, that's your prescription, though. Your prescription is really to get the world together, pick a time zone that works for everybody and their sleep patterns, and and boom, you're going to write out the prescription for everybody. We're not doing one time zone for everybody because that's a really bad idea as well, right? We don't want people to, to live in darkness. We want people to actually be exposed to their natural light-dark cycle as much as we can. Go outside, be connected to the 24-hour rhythmicity that your body has evolved in. Dr. Vetter, the assistant professor of uh, physiology, researcher in circadian rhythm and sleep disruption at the University of Colorado uh, in Boulder. You're also the senior author for the uh, chronobiological evaluation of the acute effects of daylight saving time on traffic accident risk. That is the name of the study. Thank you so much for being here and explaining all of uh, all of your research and uh, all about the importance of sleep. So we really appreciate your time. Well, I don't know where you. I guess you just just either Twitter her or you'll find a link somewhere. Just do a just, just. You'll find a news story about it. I don't know if you can read the whole text. We'll just call you Boulder. Yeah, they'll just send it to you, right? Yeah. yeah. But sleep is so important. God, tell me about it, man. I mean, not just for adults, but for kids. Here, here. All right, here's a great book for you. Since you're about Thank to, you. since you're about to be a, a daddy. Yep. It's called Baby Wise. Yeah, Actually, Baby Wise. Do you have the book? I haven't read it yet, but we have Baby Wise. Oh, yeah. you use that book. Okay. Because right now, little baby is on its own schedule. It's partying like it's in college. Yes, it is. Just drinking, eating, sleeping. Kicking doing... my wife in the ribs just like we all did in college. Oh, yeah, right? doing all that stuff. <laughs> Pooping on a schedule of its own. Mm-hmm. But you have to teach the child to live like uh, a, a human and to sleep at a certain time and to eat at certain times and to be awake and play at certain times. And so that's what that book does. Beautiful. And it's and it really helped. I'm telling you, it was, it was instrumental in... The raising of our kids, and then you'll know when the kid is either, when, when the kid's crying, it's either hungry or it's uh, tired or it's uh, pooped itself. Yep. If all, only we were all that simple. <laughs> Actually, there's a decent argument. We are all that simple. <laughs> By the way, another thing I, I forgot to add, tell the doctor what I do is uh, during the time change to try to get ahead of it early. I actually change my clocks on Friday night into Saturday instead of waiting Saturday night into Sunday. So I go a day early. So I try to get ahead of it and get my body and my mind and my eating patterns thinking about the time change a day ahead so that way I'm, I'm more prepared when I go back to work. The fact that you have to put that level of foresight into it seems like a sign that the, the system is flawed. But I do like the evening daylight. 
I do like that. I mean, I get that part, and I like to have the daylight for the school year for the kids. I mean, you. I, mean, are- I like that. I, I like how that works. I don't like it how it disrupts my sleep and my and and are obviously the, increases the risk of crashing. Sure, but like we we started it. We were on the morning show together. You were up at two fifteen. I was up at ten at night, right? And so, like, I learned a lot about circadian rhythms doing three years of graveyard shifts, and I'm a big believer in that stuff, man. Like being able to. Sleep as long as you need to, wake up without an alarm clock, and really like live your life by the rhythm of the day, by the sunrise and the sunset. That sounds like hippie. It is so important. It is probably the most important thing that you can do to make sure that you're living a healthy life. Yes. It most definitely is. So the Colorado Auto Theft Prevention Authority, the good old C-A-T-P-A. Mm, CATPA. They released their top 10 list for what vehicles are stolen most often here in Denver and the metro area for all of 2019. I wouldn't be surprised if this list is similar for other cities around the country. Okay. Here is the list as we do this like Dave Letterman style, top 10. Number 10, the Subaru Legacy, 187. Number 9, the Subaru Impreza, 200. Number eight, the GMC Sierra. That's the SUV, I believe. 235. The Dodge Ram at number seven. 248 of those. Uh, At number six and number five, we have a couple of Fords. The Ford F-150 at number six and the Ford F-350 at number five. Mm. Uh, All right, so as we go into the top five, number four, the the Chevy. The Chevy Silverado at number four at 461 stolen. The Honda Accord at number three, 466. At number two, the Ford F-250, 495 stolen. And with the number one slot, the Honda Civic at 499 vehicles stolen last year. You know what's interesting is Ford trucks, between all three of them, the F-1, 2, 350s, a thousand thirty-five of them. Well, and then you lump in the Ram and the Silverado, and you're talking about a lot of American-made big hauling type vehicles and i you know it all speaks to the pattern of why are vehicles stolen it's because people need things that can carry things so they can steal more things and 965 hondas not surprising why do the hondas get stolen so often because it's so damn easy the one that's unique to colorado is probably the subarus because i think that just speaks to how many subarus there are out here three desirable they are out here oh yeah they are when i first came here Back in uh, 1990 or so, the Subarus were everywhere. When I when I land, when I was renting a car, that was the car they rented me was the Subaru uh, Legacy. When you know the wagon deal, it was great. Drove it down. Uh, we went <laughs> to uh, Colorado Springs the day after. We took the rail uh, the Cog Railway up to the Pikes Peak. So I okay. came from Savannah at about 100 feet elevation to Pikes Peak, which is 14,110 feet elevation, and I was loopy. I'm sure. I was loopy. I was wearing a, uh, a shorts and a T-shirt. Three, and, three mile high. And then as we're going up, people are starting to put their jackets on because it's getting colder. I, I didn't bring a jacket. <laughs> it Can wasn't I you, that smart. They took us on the cog railway when I was in third grade and didn't warn anybody that it was going to be a 60-degree temperature drop from the bottom of the top. And granted, this is New Hampshire, but it's still like, oh, my, oh yeah, it's cold up here. It's snowing up here. Yes. It wasn't doing that where I just was. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I regretted that decision, not bringing a jacket. But it was good. Then I drove to Cripple Creek just as they were uh, starting the change so they'd become a gambling town. But I was on these dirt roads and jumping this thing over some of these. It was great. It was a rental car. That's I mean, what do you care? Thing. 
All right, anyway, so that's the show. Thanks again for Doc, uh, to Dr. Vetter for coming on the show and uh, talking to us. We'll talk traffic again with another traffic anchor somewhere around the country. I'll figure out who that's going to be uh, probably on Monday or, or whenever. I don't know. Uh, thanks again for being here and <laughs> listening. Until next time, I'm Jason Luber, the traffic guy. I'm rental car menace, Joseph Peters. Be safe, and as always, happy motoring. Happy motoring.